0: Good morning. My name is Johnny, one of the pastors here at Pennant Hills. Uh, John Mackinder, our lead pastor, is on holidays at the moment, as uh, some of you might know, uh, and he should be back before next weekend. But if there is something urgent that you'd like uh, prayer for, or you'd like to meet with a pastor or the elders, do get in touch, and uh, we'll hold the fort until he gets back, I suppose. Uh, let me lead us in prayer before we come to consider uh, what we've just heard in God's Word. Father, we ask that your spirit that we've just read about who came uh, and who's with us will teach us this morning and encourage us and and give us what we need to uh, head into this week confident in you uh, and knowing what you'd have us do. Minister to us even this hour and help us uh, to to grow and and to love you more because of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some preachers like to start their sermons off with uh, a brilliant or a hilarious story of some sort. Preachers like me, in my stage of life, we uh, can draw from endless family incidents with kids and use them as illustration material uh, with no shame, much to theirs and your dismay. I suppose when you spend as much time as the preachers do behind the pulpit, you develop some skills in Uh, public speaking and often they say it is good to have uh, stories and illustrations to punctuate your points because it gives people time uh, and room to process the ideas that you're introducing to them so instead of just uh, continuous blank verse after verse exegesis or even um, propositional logic that you're sort of following an argument as you work through a passage of the bible stories are good in that they give you a little bit of breathing room Uh, to think about what you've just heard and to make your own conclusions up. And so what you're meant to do to help easy listening is have a story or two. And a good story that's relevant to uh, the point that you're making, told in an expert way, can be really powerful uh, and appreciated by the people listening to you. Uh, Sometimes you can get stories that are a little bit too effective. What I mean by that is that You know, everyone enjoys and remembers the story that you tell because you made them laugh or you made them cry. But no one can tell you what that part of the story, what part of the Bible that story was meant to illustrate. No one remembers what that part of the Bible that you're sort of talking about was actually about, but good story, great illustration. I fear that's what too often happens with um, this part of the book of Acts that we're looking at this morning, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and enables the disciples of Jesus to do things that they couldn't have done before. And what happens, I find, is that we get so distracted by the weird and the wonderful and the very memorable way that the coming of the Spirit of God happens, uh, the obviously strange. We get fixated on aspects of that story so much so that we forget, we don't even think about what the Spirit comes for. And that'd be a shame. Great story, but what is it about again? So, uh, can I ask for you to temporarily resist the urge to want to have all your questions about the Holy Spirit answered when you look at this passage, and uh, can I encourage you to notice the other details that are quite clear here? Uh, We're told, first of all, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that these events, they happen on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the big Jewish feast days, a big, big public holiday, uh, marking and celebrating harvest time, uh, the gathering in of the early wheat harvest. And Jerusalem would have been packed with people uh, for this period of time, something like think, something like the Easter show mixed in with uh, Christmas time. And Jews from all over the place are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate uh, with the other Jewish faithful. And Jesus' disciples are here too because... They hadn't left Jerusalem. They came in with Jesus before Jesus was arrested and crucified. And after Jesus had risen from the dead, they were still here in the city, witnessing uh, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. and this small group of disciples, they stayed in Jerusalem because Jesus had told them to fairly directly. Uh, you see that in Acts chapter one, uh, verse four to seven. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them. He gave them this command. He said to them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. Uh, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, 4-8. So they did what Jesus asked them to do. They waited, and they stayed there in Jerusalem. And it would have been about 50 days or so between Passover, when Jesus was crucified, and Pentecost, 50 days, is normally the time that it takes. Um, it's seven weeks plus one day. And a lot of things would have happened in that time. Since the death of Jesus, the, the disciples' grief had turned to joy when they saw Jesus uh, risen and in the flesh again. And Jesus had appeared to them plenty of times. And this group of Jesus' followers, uh, we're told in our passage, there's about 120 of them, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, uh, They met together every day to encourage each other and to pray. They'd also just seen Jesus taken up back to the Father. They'd heard his instructions to stay in Jerusalem until God would fill them with his Spirit. And so here they are, all together, still in Jerusalem. And the day of Pentecost, this festival comes around, and this day, this day is the day that God's Spirit comes and fills them. This is what Jesus was talking about would happen now jesus hadn't told them exactly when or how long they would have to wait he just said wait but the way it happens on this day there was no way they'll be able to miss what was happening even without jesus being present to teach them and to show them like he had been for for the three years he was walking amongst them There's no way they would have missed what was going on here. This wasn't just a quiet and invisible work of God's Spirit in someone's heart. No, what happens on this Pentecost day was a sensory experience. God makes it clear, very clear, that something is definitely happening here. They they hear and they see. They hear in in verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And so it doesn't happen in a quiet moment of meditation. This is noisy and intense. And you get the impression later on that other people also hear this noise uh, that's happening in this house and they come to see what's going on. And it's not just that they hear, they see. They see in verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire That separated and came to rest on each of them and so all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit if ever any group of people were looking for a sign from God it couldn't get any clearer than this if that were to happen here this morning even the slowest and most unobservant of us there's no way that if this happened what happened in verse 2 and 3 that Well, it's not like they all turn to each other and and, and ask each other, hey, do you think that was it? Do you think this is what Jesus was talking about? They knew. When it happened, they knew. And God made sure of it. There is a history of God filling people with His Spirit in the Old Testament. uh, And it may be worthwhile uh, trying to think about what the disciples have understood of what it meant to be filled with the Spirit as far as they knew from Scripture before uh, to try to make sense of what we have here. There's uh, recorded episodes and incidents in Israel's history and God's interaction with his people where he's done this in different ways as he fills people with his spirit. And the most common one, it's not like it's even all that common because God filling people with his spirit tended to be a once in a generation sort of thing. But the most common, so to speak, of these rare occasions would be, um, I think, with God's prophets. You see it with God's prophets. And with Old Testament prophecy, God typically would give His Spirit to someone who, guided by the Spirit, brings a message from God to Israel, and that's why we have so much in the Old Testament written by the prophets. It's Spirit-inspired. For example, let me show you a passage in Exodus with Moses and the 70 elders he was delegating responsibility to. Numbers 11, sorry. Uh, it says this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. And it's not just with Moses or these elders. It sort of happens with the different messengers from God that he sends to his people. He empowers them and tells them what to say by his Spirit. Uh, Then you have even rarer stories of where God puts his spirit on someone and that enables them to do feats of power and strength, like, for example, with the seriously character-flawed person of Samson in the book of Judges. And so we have uh, verses like this, Judges 14.5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Uh, or Samson again, this time after they've, uh, some people have caught him and tied him up with ropes to hand him over to an enemy army. Uh, we read this, Judges 15. As Samson approached Lehi. The Philistines came towards him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. And the story goes on. He picks up an ox bone or something and and kills a thousand men. So there's prophecy, uh, and there's feats of power. And even rarer than that, the Spirit of God enables superhuman acts of craft Uh, and this one i'm appreciating more and more after helping evie and joyce put together uh, this elaborate crazy easter hat for the coming easter hat parade at her school Um, there's this there's actually this account of where god puts his spirit on someone and gives them divine artistic ability and craftsmanship i think it's the only story that's like it in the bible exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Bet it would have been handy with a hot glue gun. Uh, He's the one who gets to make all the implements of cultic worship used in the tent where Moses and later the high priest would meet with God. Uh, And so uh, you see, there's more than these examples as well, but at least you see that the Spirit in the Old Testament has enabled things like prophecy, things like feats of strength and things of craftsmanship. Uh, But here, what we have in Acts 2 In that room with Jesus' disciples, where they've heard this noise like the violent wind and they've seen something like fire come to rest on each of them, and the Spirit of God is in them now, something new, I think, is happening. And as the Spirit of God rests on them, it fills them and enables them to do something different to these other stories that you read about in the Old Testament. It's not feats of power, it's not artistic ability. What happens that day is they get the ability to speak in other human languages that they hadn't known before. You know they're not speaking in gibberish or some weird heavenly language because there's these other people in town from uh, different parts of the world who've come into Jerusalem for the public holiday, the Pentecost festival, and those foreigners, they understand what's being spoken. They can hear this little group of Galileans speaking fluently in all the different mother tongues from each of their homelands. Verse 4. All of them, these disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Uh, And you get the list of the different people in the next... um, I think my connection to the slides are gone. If you can switch over for us. Thank you, sound person. Uh, Utterly amazed... We read very quickly there. Here we go, next one. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia Pontus and Asia Phrygia Pamphylia Egypt and all other parts of Libya near Cyrene visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism Cretans and Arabs it goes on uh, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages amazed and perplexed they ask one another what does this mean Uh, I get a little bit of enjoyment here at our church when we have people from uh, China or Taiwan uh, come and visit our services, uh, Mandarin speakers, and they come either as friends or or visitors to something like a morning service we have here. And I'm sure Brian Dillon gets as much enjoyment, if not more enjoyment, out of this than I do. From time to time, I would see Brian Dillon come up to our Mandarin-speaking friends at, at morning tea or at lunch, and those of you who don't know Brian... Uh, he's a, it's a tall, senior, Anglo man who's trying to hide in his seat right now. Uh, <laughs> beautiful man of God. He, he was a missionary for most of his life uh, overseas, and he speaks. He, he can speak fluent Mandarin. Uh, but if you didn't know that, just from outward appearances, if you just looked at Brian uh, at a morning tea, he's a white, tall, Anglo sort of man, coming up to a, a group of Mandarin speakers and I think he enjoys this. He, he surprises our Mandarin guests when he greets them and he engages them in conversation in fluent Mandarin. Uh, it's a surprise and it's a joy for everybody in that sort of space. Now, he's learned that language over years of study initially and then and then practice for a lifetime. But for these disciples that we have in our story today, the ability to speak foreign languages seem to come instantaneously. And I don't know if they kept the ability to speak in those languages after this event or if it was just a one-off, like how the Spirit of God was a one-off prophesying for the the prophets, for the elders who got the Spirit of Moses. We're not told. But this event here that we have is something like the reverse of the Tower of Babel, if you know that story. And experienced Bible readers might want to think about that a bit harder and compare Babel with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost in your own time. But back to our text. Why why this? Why do you think the Spirit gives them ability in languages? Why not feats of strength? Why not beautiful craftsmanship for the early church to get the attention of the watching world, uh, to alert them to the salvation that's come? Why language? Uh, Many possible reasons, two that I can think of. One, I think, has to do with the nature of the salvation that Jesus has made possible. Jesus has already done it all. Jesus has come. Jesus has taken on himself our sin. He's paid the penalty for it in his death on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He has done all the heavy lifting. No more feats of strength or power are required here. Because God has already enabled the relationship to be possible between us and God. And all that's left, I think, is for people to respond in faith and to trust Him. But if people are going to trust what Jesus has done, they have to hear about it. And if they're going to hear, it requires somebody to tell them that news, and that, that requires words, human language to communicate just exactly what it is that Jesus has done. And so maybe it is very appropriate that what the Spirit enables, as it fills people with power, what the Spirit enables is speech, for people to hear the wonders of God in Jesus. A second possible reason for why the power of the Spirit manifests this way in enabling speaking foreign languages is that this could be symbolic of Jesus' purposes and his intended work in this world through the followers that he's left behind. You might, have, uh, you might remember that first verse I put up for us uh, where Jesus said to, his final instructions to his disciples before he ascended to the Father. He said, uh, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the Spirit to come, and what was the charter he set for his disciples? When the Spirit comes and empowers you, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. That was their final uh, charge and marching orders, to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem where they were and into the surrounding region, into Judea and Samaria, and then beyond, to the ends of the earth. And if that is the outward trajectory that Jesus has set them on, maybe it's perfectly appropriate that when the Spirit comes on them in power, They are symbolically and actually enabled to speak the languages of countries that will span to the ends of the earth. God wants the news about Jesus to go out into all the world so that everyone from every nation can hear it and be saved. The uh, title for this series in Acts that we're doing is A New Home. Uh, And there's the splash for it. We've been looking, and we'll continue to look through these first two chapters of Acts, at these disciples, these people who've started following Jesus, coming to find their identity and their sense of belonging in Jesus, and they form this community, this family of faith. And if we're going with this house imagery that John Mack's been using in his talk so far, well, I've titled this talk, Open House. Because the invitation is for all nations, everybody, anybody to come and check out what is happening here. The property is open for inspection, so to speak. Whether you're Jewish or Roman or Persian or Egyptian, Sri Lankan or Malaysian, African or Chinese, the house is open. And the prospectus is translated into every language and there's an estate agent hailing you in your mother tongue, inviting you to come and take a look. That, I think, is what the freshly empowered disciples of of, of Jesus are doing. They start speaking about the wonders of God in Jesus, and they're doing it in all these different languages. And it just so happens that in town, for the day of Pentecost, there are all these Jews from different parts of the world who've gathered for this big religious public holiday. And maybe for the first time, these out-of-towners are getting to hear the news about Jesus and hearing it really clearly because it's been told to them in their heart language, the language that they speak growing up. And maybe that's a sign and a preview of things to come. But not everyone is impressed. Uh, Some of the crowd, hearing the public disturbance, they attribute it to some people who haven't had too much to drink. Verse 13... Uh, But Peter stands up and addresses the crowd, uh, and he says to them, We're not drunk. Look at verse uh, 14 with us. I think it's up on the screen. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here he quotes um, the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the earth below, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, He's quoting there the Old Testament prophet Joel, and Peter is talking to some serious Jews here who have come in for the festival. They know their Old Testament, and they know that Joel, this part of it is talking about the end of history, the last days before God comes to wrap everything up. And Peter says... This is it. Now. These are the days of the fullness of the Spirit that Joel was talking about. And the evidence is what the crowd see and hear right in front of them. There's no more decisive turning points or other signs that have to happen before Jesus comes back to bring in his kingdom. The house is open. And now is the time to come in. The Messiah has come. He's already finished the work of redeeming people on the cross, He is already risen. He's already ascended to the right hand of God and this short time before he returns in glory. The time is now. And it's a time that is marked by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people. As Joel said, young and old, men and women, and the people of God in this period are filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to be God's witnesses to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And it's a message for everyone everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the message that we've been wrapped up in all the way here, even in far-flung Australia, of all places. We live in these last days and the days of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And maybe for you, you, you don't see what looks like flames of fire resting on people or hear the sound like a violent wind when the Spirit does His thing in people's lives today. Maybe you haven't burst out spontaneously in the ability to speak a language that you've never studied before, because that's what the Spirit has enabled you to do. Mind you, that would have been very useful, uh, I think back a few years back in my German continuous HSE speaking exam, and that would have been very, very useful. Maybe the things we've read about today were just signs uh, for, for that time, for that day of Pentecost, symbolic of what God had asked these disciples to do for him. But might I suggest that what I have seen the Spirit do with my own eyes is so much more amazing than just the enabling of the speaking of foreign languages, as nice as this is. Because to me, transformed lives speak just as powerfully as any native language. What I've seen of what God has done to turn someone around and soften their hearts and to make something new in them, uh, that's of Him. Well, That's a large part of how I started taking my faith seriously. I saw the impact of God's Spirit in the Christians that I knew back when I was 15 years old. I saw love and faith and hope in my Christian friends that I couldn't explain in any other way other than this was what God must have been having a hand in, by His Spirit. And it was that, as much as anything, that drew me to the truth of Jesus. I wouldn't have been impressed by people who could speak different languages. They could speak Cantonese, they could speak English, they could speak whatever they wanted to. What made an impression on me were people that I could see who were like Jesus because of the work of the Spirit. So let me ask you, do you see evidence of the Spirit of God in your life? Where's the fruit? Do you see Him enabling love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Don't sell those things short. They are precious. And do you share the excitement and do you share in the work of world mission? Do you get excited about getting the word about Jesus out to everyone? It thrilled me last week that we got to recommission Christine. Uh, She heads off soon to Taiwan again for another couple of years. Uh, It's a joy to have her again this morning. This might be the last Sunday that many of us will get to uh, speak to her face to face for a couple of years. I met the new Christian studies teacher at Cherrybrook Tech just the other day. And uh, while the work sounds hard, the fact that she's there is such a blessing. And when one of the girls from our youth group told me a little while back now she was uh, getting together with some of the other Christians in her grade, uh, lunchtime every week at school, uh, one of the lunchtimes every week at school, to share an informal, simple Bible study with Uh, the non-Christian friends in their group, because they didn't know about Jesus, and that that group was going really well. Something about that just felt so right. And when Nath Pratt tells me about his mates who he meets up with uh, to share Bible stories with them, because they they haven't really known much about Jesus, but he he meets with them in the pub, and he tells Bible stories, and they talk about it together. That is right, isn't it? Because that's in keeping with what Jesus asked us to do. It's the unfinished business that he's tasked his church to get on with. Being his witnesses where he's put us and all the way to the ends of the earth. Amen.